0: Amen. Good morning, Cross Point. Good morning, kids. You can be released. And I want to encourage you, even as we begin in, in backstage listening to that song, I, I want that song to continue to echo in your mind this morning as we go through this sermon. Like God's faithfulness has been consistent, pursuing after us all of our life. He's been faithful. His goodness, His loving kindness pursuing us. Let those themes continue to ring in the back of our minds this morning as we continue in our study through the Minor Prophets. We're in week three of a 12-week series through uh, the Minor Prophets, and these are men whom God used to speak His word to His people at a particular time and place in history that still... Applicable to us today. And so the way that we're going through these 12 minor prophets is in chronological order, not just the order they appear in scripture, but as they appear throughout history. And so one way to help you understand where the minor prophets fall within time and who they're speaking to is this timeline that you'll see up on the screen. Now you're probably like, I can't read that. I just wanted to let you know this is available. If you look at your worship guide on the back, there's a QR code. resources. Or if you're online on our webpage at xpoint.com, if you go to Messages Current Series, this is one of the resources we have available to help you put these different books of the Bible into a historical context. You'll also find sermon notes, where if you're looking for more detail to follow along with the message, or even short videos that explain the different books of the Bible from the Bible Project, these are available to you. Now today... We're going to be going through the book of Micah. He spoke to both, if you know, the the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, He was a contemporary with Hosea, which we'll be preaching on next week. He was also a contemporary with Isaiah, who Katie read from as we began our service this morning. And so that's where we're going to be looking today. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, if you're kind of flipping through the Bible, if you don't have it on your phone, it'll be right after Jonah. And if you find yourself in Nahum, you've gone too far. It's just before then. So you'll find it. They can be hard to flip through. Or you can just look at the table of contents and go right to the page number, which makes it even easier. But before we get started, I kind of want to paint a picture in our minds of the context. So rather than just reading the words, what's the context that these words were spoken? And I want you to imagine that you're a child in a home with loving kind parents. You've always felt secure. They've been kind and good to you. You've had a good life. You have numerous siblings, the majority of whom have been completely disobedient. Whatever the parents have said, they've just done their own thing, that they've done the opposite. In the house, you can feel the tension in the house. The house now feels divided, right? There's tension. Then all of a sudden, it's those words, which my kids have heard at different times. We're going to have a family meeting. Come sit down. Time for a family meeting. It's like, uh oh, what happened? What's wrong? And everyone's kind of wandering into the kitchen. Nobody's really wanting to sit down. Nobody really wants to hear what this conversation is going to be about because it's going to mess up everything that has been up to that point. But all of a sudden, it's like the father says, time to get started. And there's this clap of thunder. Like, you know what I mean? Like when those thunderstorms hit and it sounds like the sky has just cracked open and then the rumble just begins to go across the land. Now imagine that thunder never stops. You hear it off in the distance, but you kind of hear it growing closer. Now, all of a sudden, everything feels a bit ominous and it's sit down, we need to talk. This is the context that Micah speaks. Because Israel, the children of God, were in a house that was literally divided, that was walking in rebellion for 275 years since King David was crowned. Like, they've known peace, prosperity. Things have been good for hundreds of years. But The children of God are disobeying. They're walking in rebellion. They're doing whatever they want to do. And for the last 10 to 15 years, there's been this growing news of this army in Assyria that's growing and drawing near. For 10 to 15 years, there's this threat of impending war. And Micah speaks. This is the context that his words are heard. So let's pray and then dive in. Lord, I thank you for this time that we have together in your word, Lord. And I pray that you would soften our hearts, open our eyes to see, experience, taste the beauty of your word, Lord. Where comfort is needed this morning, let there be comfort. Where conviction is needed, Lord, let there be conviction. But above all, let the name of Jesus Christ be lifted high. And in Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump in, I want us to see the the loving kindness of discipline. We have six kids, and when the kids were young, Kirsten and I tried our best imperfectly to discipline our children in a particular way. There was kind of three steps, probably more, that we followed when the kids disobeyed. And I don't mean like an accident that a child does, like, oh, they accidentally knock over a glass of grape juice and it gets onto the carpet. Not that. It's kind of that deliberate disobedience. Like my oldest, when she was young, I remember one moment where she was standing there and it was like, don't touch that. And it's like, oh, you mean this kind of pointing at it right here? And then they kind of look at you and you're like, oh, you mean don't touch this like that? And they're just looking at you, that kind of disobedience. That's what I'm talking about. That started a process for us. It was a process where we sat down and, and first we explained what they did wrong we told you not to touch this and you touched it. That's disobedience. That was step one. Step two was the punishment. They were disciplined. Normally in our house, that meant that they were spanked. That was step two. Step three, we hugged them and we reassured them of our love. That that did not break anything between us. We loved them. And normally, you, like, if you know, like they were tense, they were stiff. They're like, I don't want to feel this. And then you could kind of feel their body soften in time. That was a process that we went through. This is a similar process that we see in the book of Micah. There's going to be an explanation. Why are we being punished? What did we do wrong? There's a why. Let me tell you what you did wrong. That's going to happen four times. You're going to see this in sections kind of on the screen. The way that Micah is broken down, there's four woes, four oracles. You're going to hear me talk about it as four disobediences. This is the explanation. This is what you did wrong, and here's the punishment. Here's what's going to happen because you disobeyed. But it doesn't end there. After each time, there's this metaphoric hug, this promise of deliverance that's coming. It doesn't just end with judgment and punishment, it ends with God's mercy, his loving kindness pursuing us after each one that creates this thread throughout the whole book. So let's look at the beginning. Beginning in chapter one. It's a disobedience of ethic and truth. And it's this sense of when... The father calls the meeting for that first time, that booming voice that kind of puts a chill in your bones. Listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him. The valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like a cascading down a mountainside. This is kind of like the uh uh-oh moment, right? Right? God is stepping in. This is the time when disobedience seemed fun. It seemed like when you were just with your friends and the other siblings and you're doing what you're not supposed to and we're so cool now and then you look back and one of the parents is in the doorway and all of a sudden your blood runs cold. It's that moment disobedience seemed fun until now the moment God has stood from his throne and he stepped down into the situation and his footprint remains the mountains will crumble the the, the valleys will melt like wax and then what do kids typically say it's their fault right this is typically what happens they're the ones like they started it, it they're the ones who did it and who's in trouble and what we're going to see is God say, everyone's in trouble. Everyone's to blame. It wasn't me, it's their fault. Everyone is in trouble. All this will happen, verse 5, because of Jacob's rebellion. Now, here's the key phrase Jacob's rebellion. See, the northern and southern kingdoms are split. So the north is called Israel, the south is called Judah, Samaria's in the north, Jerusalem's in the south, like it's their fault. No, it was them. No, it was them. No, it was Jacob's rebellion. It was all the Jews. It was all God's children. They're all to blame. This is what that phrase means. All this is happening because of Jacob's rebellion. Yes, the sins of the house of Israel in the north. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? See, it's the north's fault. It's their problem. And it's, isn't it the high places in Judah? Uh-oh. Isn't it Jerusalem? This is getting to everyone. What did we do? Right? What are the accusations that God is bringing? And we see this then in beginning in chapter 2. It's how you treat one another, it's how you treat others. It's the ethic. Like, look, you dream up ways, it says. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. It's not like you're just doing bad. It's not like you're just like, "Uh uh-oh, I did something I wasn't supposed to. I knocked over a glass of grape juice. It's no, you're laying in bed creatively contemplating how to get away with disobedience. That's where you're at. And you're doing that to the harm of one another that you're taking things that don't belong to you, you're, you're hurting one another, you're stealing from others because of your greed. You're like, here, let me steal someone's identity. Here, let me take their money. It's like, oh, well, the, because of the market as a landlord, let me just push up the rent, and it doesn't matter if you can afford it or not because, oh, it's the market, and we just line our pockets with greed regardless of the impact this has on somebody else. This is what it's referring to. And it says there's discipline in verses three through five. What you have in ill gotten gain, what you've taken from others, the, the way that you've just taken what doesn't belong to you, all of that will be taken away and more because of the way that you've treated one another. This is why punishment is coming. And not just that, but also because you've distorted truth. Look at verse six. Quit your preaching, they preach. See, they're telling Micah, would you please just keep your mouth shut? We don't like what you're saying. We don't like this judgment thing. We don't like this wrath thing. Stop saying what you're saying. God isn't mad. This isn't wrong. Surely we won't be punished for disobeying. It says, Is the Spirit of the Lord actually impatient? Are these the things that He does? Isn't God a God of love and acceptance? He's not going to judge us. He's merciful and good. You don't have to worry about any kind of judgment. It'll be fine. Look at everyone else. It's not like He's going to judge anybody anyway. In verse 11, it says, even if a false teacher, a false preacher stands up and and, and tries to sell you snake oil, it says, I will preach to you about wine and beer. Here, let me tell you about something you want to hear. Then it says, then you're just going to make them the next celebrity preacher. Oh, we love him. And later it says that um, in verse 11, that The preachers are just wanting to line their pockets with silver. It's like, so what do you want to hear today? What would tickle your ears? I'll tell you that. That's what the preachers of the day were doing. See, televangelists aren't new. It's not like, oh, now we have TV and now we just have all these false preachers out there. No, it was back then as well. We just have a new medium to peddle what people want to hear so that we're liked and we can make money. And this is coming against pastors this is talking about those who preach, and they're telling people like Micah, hey, just be quiet. Therefore, in 2 3, the Lord says, I am now planning disaster against this nation. You cannot free your necks from it. Then you will not walk so proudly, because this will be an evil time. And so now we get our first why but we also get our first promise in 2, 12 through 13. And I want us to see this. In reality, I feel like I could probably do a whole sermon just on these two verses, because if you enjoy like the Hebrew language and traditional Jewish poetry and how that helps us discern meaning and some of the technical side, you would have loved that sermon. If you're just like, tell me the conclusion, the Cliff Notes version, then you're going to prefer today. If you want all the geeky stuff, let me know. I'd be glad to talk with you about that. But here's what we see in verses 12 and 13, because one of the things to keep in mind with Micah is it has some of the clearest messianic prophecies of any book in the Bible. It's next to Isaiah. Now, by messianic prophecy, what I mean is that because of sin, there was a promise of one who would come, who would defeat sin, finally, once and for all, the victor to defeat sin, he had not appeared yet. And so there was promises of the one who was to come. There was deliverance, there was hope for the sinner. There was hope for the broken. And these two verses in 12 and 13 point to that. I will. I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel in 2.12. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of a pasture. It will be noisy with people. I'm going to gather people, and there's going to be so many people, it's going to be loud and noisy in there. This is what I'm going to do. And then he describes how. In verse 13, one who breaks open the way. This is that phrase. And this is where I'm just going to jump to the end because this is a beautiful phrase. And, and there's this picture. If you're a shepherd out in a field and you have sheep, right, and, and they've been grazing all day and you're going to stay in for the night, you don't build, like, put, put in fence posts, lay a, a fence, have the nice latch gate door or anything. You're not going to do that for overnight. You're going to pull thickets together, right, to keep the sheep in through the night, to keep them safe, to keep them in and the enemies out. Now, when morning comes and it's time to take those sheep back to pasture, there's that person who's going to come and kick the thickets open to make an opening, to break an opening into the wall. And then when the first sheep goes through, the other will follow. And here's the imagery. There is one who breaks open the way. This phrase can be found in Matthew 11, verse 10, written about John the Baptist. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. It's a title. One who breaks open the way. It's a prophecy about John the Baptist who is coming. And then at the end of verse 13, you have this Hebrew comparative couplet. It's what it's called. This poetry line where the two lines go together. The king will pass through before them. The Lord is their leader. The Lord and king are one and the same. He is both leader and he will pass through before them. John kicks open the way. Jesus leads into the new kingdom. This is what is being said here. Here's the promise. And then it goes right back like, here's the leader who's coming. It's going to be the Lord. But your leaders comes, now comes the second woe. Your leaders are disobedient. Your leaders aren't listening to God. And yet that's who you're following. And this then becomes the second disobedience of the leaders. Unjust leaders are judged in three one. Then I said, now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? But you hate good and you love evil. Now, here's the thing. This is graphic, what I'm about to read, but this is in the Bible. And I want you to consider how God feels about injustice. When we treat people without equity, for whatever reason, this is how God describes it in language. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat their flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. And then they will cry out to the Lord. Then you do all these things. That's how you treat people. And then times get bad and you cry out to me and I will not listen. This is what God is saying. These are the the civil leaders of the time that are saying no. No, that they're just doing what is evil and wicked. And that's how God describes it. Now, if that doesn't just kind of churn your stomach a little bit, something's wrong. Because it's a disgusting graphic picture. And that's exactly how God views injustice. And then again, he's going to go against the preachers. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray in 3.5, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouth. See, this is where it says later in 3.11, her prophets practice divination for silver. Essentially, they'll preach to you whatever you want to hear as long as you line their pockets with enough money. As long as they get enough acceptance, enough views, enough popularity, they'll say whatever it is you want to hear. And these pastors who lead people astray, who proclaim peace, oh, everything's great, as long as you like me, as long as you're affirming, as long as everything's good, peace, peace, peace. But as soon as there's anything bad, as soon as there's discomfort, war, judgment, They're just saying whatever they want to say based on themselves and what they want in their own greed, and their own prosperity. Churches and pastors and religious leaders can misuse spiritual authority for their own gain. Just because someone has a title, just because church may be on a sign out front, there takes a discerning heart that must align with scripture. Do not believe everything you hear. And this is what Micah is addressing. They're using their spiritual authority for their own comfort. They're using their spiritual authority for their own financial gain. And the consequence in 3 6, therefore it will be night for you without visions, it will grow dark for you without divination. You do not hear from God. You are not speaking his word. You are speaking lies for your own greed, but your ears are deaf to the word of God. Your eyes cannot see. They are blinded to the truth of God. This is what Micah is saying, but then he turns around, and he says in 3, eight. But as for me, however, I'm filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion in Israel his sin. Do you hear it? Do you see what Micah's doing? Like, Yes, you can find somebody out there to agree with whatever position you want. That doesn't make it true. Just because someone has a title or a degree does not make it true. There is truth that is not because I say it, it's not because someone else says it. There is truth because God's word says it, and either someone is speaking according to God's truth or counter to it. But they could not see that. And so destruction was coming in 3:12. Therefore, because you, Zion, will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become ruined. See here it is, Here's what you did wrong. Here's what you did wrong, and here's the punishment. You'll be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins and the temple mountain like a high thicket. This is the punishment coming. But then there's mercy. Again, there's that metaphorical hug that's coming. In the last days, see in four one. Now this is distinct. Something's just changed here. We're no longer talking about now that's happening. We're talking about something that is still to happen in the future. And in fact, if we look at what this is about to say, it's not even future just for them, the original audience. It's also future for us. It's what awaits on the horizon. It's a picture of what will be. Because we still have unjust leaders. We still have untruthful churches and pastors We still experience the brokenness of people's sin and God's loving kindness pursuing his children. But in the last days, see in a time yet to come, God will be our king. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. It says, He will teach us. He will be our true leader. He will be our true shepherd, our true pastor. He will teach us. In Him, there will be peace. Micah. Four three, there will there they will beat their swords into ploughs and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. We have not seen that day as of yet, but it is coming. In the last days in the kingdom of God, that is how it will be. And there will be an equal prosperity. Micah four four. But each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. This was the typical Jewish view of prosperity. I work my land, I have a grapevine, I have a fig tree that i cultivated, I've seen grow, I eat the fruit of, and there's no threat that someone's going to come in here and take it from me. That was the ultimate picture of peace and prosperity for the Jew that will be in the kingdom of God. This is the promise of what will be but then comes the next woe. But rather than hoping in God, rather than fixing our eyes on God and what will be, we fixed our eyes in the hope today, here, now, with human hands. Now, it says in 4.9, now, why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? What this is saying is that, see, you've looked to a human king. You thought that the next election would make everything better. If we just got the right politician in there, it would be better. If we just had the next new leader, things would be better. If we just had the next person, the next influencer, the, the next person with the great advice, if we just listened to them, everything would be better. And so we put our hope there, and it failed us. And we cried out, Where's our leader? Where's our king? Where's our counselor? And the longing of misplaced hope gives birth to destruction. And the consequence is war is coming. 411, many nations have now assembled against you. But they don't know what God's about to do. See, we begin to see this change. In 410, it says, you will go to Babylon. There though you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. See, so now we see both the punishment for their misplaced hope, but we also see the promise of hope that we're going to be rescued. There's going to be a redemption. Someone is going to come, the true king, the Lord, who's going to lead us out, the one who was promised. But how will we know? Who will he be? that we can look to who is worthy of placing our hope in. And then Micah begins to tell us in 5 two, Bethlehem. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me from Bethlehem. This seemingly small, insignificant little town in Judah from here's going to rise up the leader. Now we know from where they're going to come. This is where the leader's going to come from. This is where the king's going to come from. This is the one who will teach us, who will rescue us, who will deliver us. And here's the thing in 5:2 his origin is from antiquity. From ancient times it means he may be born in in bethlehem but it's not like his life started there this is the lord the eternal god the one who has always been and always will be he has always existed from eternity past this is what it's saying he is from his origin is from antiquity from ancient times and in 5.3, instead of giving birth to destruction, a woman will give birth to a son in Bethlehem and he will lead and shepherd his people and he will bring peace and he will judge and he will rescue. And if you're saying that kind of sounds like Jesus in the nativity, you would be right. The only thing is this was written about 750 years before Jesus was born. This was a prophecy that was written, a promise that was to point, to say, this is where your hope, there's some things that are coming that's going to be hard, but you're going to be rescued. And this is how you're going to know it's him. So keep your eyes fixed on him. And it continues that there's punishment, but until that day, there is punishment. Because in 510, in that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots. I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. I will remove sorceries from your hands and you will not have any more fortune tellers. I will remove your carved in it. Images and sacred pillars from you, so that you will no longer worship the works of your hands. I will pull up the Asherah poles among you and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. See, it's at this point when people are like, hey, Micah, can you just stop preaching right now? It's kind of uncomfortable. I don't like that. What happened to all the good news and just making it feel warm and fuzzy so I can go eat lunch? But here's the thing. Love is often expressed through discipline. When we love, there is punishment. There is justice. It is an expression of God's grace and mercy to draw hearts back to him. But they didn't want to listen. 6-1 says, now listen to what the Lord is saying. See, God's about to speak and he's about to rebuke them because he's like, okay, come, please rise, plead your case to me before the mountains. Let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth. Because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue that against Israel. See, people were complaining to God, God, you're too harsh. God, this makes me feel uncomfortable. God, don't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. And they want to accuse God, and they want to condemn God. God, why are you doing this to me? You're not being nice. And God's like, really? And he begins recounting his good works towards them in 63. My people, what have I done to you? Please tell me, tell me how I've wronged you, how wearisome I've been to you, and how I've wearied you. Testify against me. Please tell me how I've been so horrible to you. I brought you up out of slavery from Egypt. I've given you good leaders and Moses, Aaron, Miriam. I protected you against other nations. So please come to me with your condemnation about how wearisome I've been to you. No. The pleas of the people fall on deaf ears as God rebukes them. And then we see the plea of the prophet. Hearing this, he's like, what do we do? What do we do? What can we give? What what, what can we do? What should I bring before the Lord in 6-6? When I come and bow down before the God on high, what can I bring for His Pleasure. And then we see this cascading, increasing impact to the absurd of what we can bring and all of it being insufficient. Can I bring burnt offerings? Well, maybe if I just go to church on Sunday, then how I've treated people won't matter and and then God'll be okay with me. But or maybe then I'll bring a year old calf and, and I'll join a community group and I'll I'll get even more invested and I'll serve and I'll do all these good things and maybe that'll counter how I'm treating people. Maybe I'll bring a thousand rams. Before God, and and I'll give a huge donation to church, and maybe then I can buy God's favor, or maybe 10,000 streams of oil. It just goes to the absurd and the absurd till finally He says, Well, what if I give my firstborn? Will that be sufficient? But see, God is not interested in the offering as much as He is in the heart of the offerer. Consider this. God's mercy cannot be purchased. It is through a heart surrendered to him. See, we think, oh, if I do something bad, now I'll do this for you, God, and then you'll bless me, right? Like, okay, I know I did this, but now I'm going to do this. And we start to relate to God on this exchange thing. And and this is saying it's impossible. How much are you going to give? All of it is absurd. It's the heart you want to know what God requires? You want to know what He wants? It tells us exactly in 6 8. Mankind. That's interesting. If you're following the labels, this isn't Jacob, this isn't Israel, this isn't Judah, this isn't Jerusalem, Samaria. This is mankind. You have breath, you're a human being. This is for you. You want to know what the Lord requires? This is it. He told each of you what is good and what is the Lord requires of you. You want to know? This is it. Act justly. You want to give an offering? Act justly towards others, regardless of how they're the same or different from you. Treat people with equality. Treat people fairly. Confront the oppressor. Comfort the oppressed. Do what is right. Act with justice towards others. You want to do what the Lord requires? Love faithfulness. It literally means a loving kindness. It's a hesed love. This is to love mercy, love kindness toward others. Now, here's the thing. Out of the three things that are going to be mentioned, the first two is how we treat one another. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes we think if we just have Christian beliefs, then we're Christian. But this is saying Christian beliefs without Christian behavior, without obedience, we're not actually following Jesus. See, if, if you say, I believe rightly and I treat people however I want, you're not actually following Jesus. You're not following God. Walk humbly with your God. This is it. You want to do what the Lord requires? He doesn't need a thousand rams, 10,000 streams of oil. He wants your heart. He wants you to act with justice towards others. He wants you to to love faithfulness to one another. He wants you to walk with humility with him. That's what it means. And then we see the prophet's sorrow in 7-2. So right after that, it's this beautiful proclamation, but now the prophet lifts his eyes and he looks around and he says in 7-2, faithful people have vanished from this land. There's no one upright, among the people, all of them. They just wait and ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. It's like I look around and, and I hear what the Lord requires and then I look out into the world and I see the complete opposite. I see people consumed with greed. I see people stepping over one another for their own gain, mistreating people simply because they're different. And really, that's it. This is what the Lord requires and I look out and I don't see it. Micah 7, three. both hands are good at accomplishing evil. It's like you're so good at evil, you're like a switch hitter in baseball. You are as good with evil with your right hand as you are your left. It's amazing. You're so accomplished at doing what is wrong is what he's saying. And then we get into the final verses. And this is why I want to conclude. Because have you ever felt that way? Like, I mean, I'm just saying, like, if we're here and we can sit here and we can say, okay, if we're like, Micah, I feel this at times. There's things I'm going to say people aren't going to like. There's things I have said that have caused people to leave. Am I going to say things to make people like me or am I going to say what's true? And we have this. We can say, well, what about the culture? What about those who we see injustice? We see a lack of mercy. We see a lack of kindness. I look out there and I see a broken world and we could leave here and we could say, isn't the world so bad? And that's our takeaway. And that would be a horrible, horrible takeaway because this is how it concludes. And I want us to see this. Where does Micah look? Where do you look when it feels like the world around you, in reality, people walking in disobedience all around, when you see the discipline that's coming, where do you fix your eyes? You say, I can't believe how disobedient they are. They're so bad. Why don't they stop being bad? But that's not where Micah looks. This is where we see the change. I want us to see Micah's focus in 7-7. But I will look to the Lord. He's not looking to the good. He's not looking to the bad. He's not even looking to himself here. He's looking to the Lord. And I will wait for the God of my salvation because he will hear me. Where are you looking and listening? See, if your takeaway from here is just to, to go and reinforce with your favorite social media, online platform, and aren't these people so bad, and, and that political party, or these people, and, and you just start like saying, all these people are just bad, 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 and that's where the focus is, you've missed the point. Micah's focus is on God. He sees the brokenness, but he sees God he says, I'm going to look to him and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait. It's this clinging on to holding on to as God enters into his brokenness. He's like, and I'm going to wait because God's going to hear me and I'm going to fix my eyes on him. I'm not going to build some little micro echo chamber of people just telling me what I want to hear. I'm going to fix my eyes on God because I need to hear from him. And then something strange happens. I think it's strange. We see Micah's conviction in 7, 8, and 9. See, so the first question would be, who are you listening and looking to? But if we're looking to God, something happens, and now we're going to see Micah take his own advice. What does the Lord require? To walk humbly with God. What does that look like? That looks like Micah saying, though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light because I have sinned against him. I've sinned against him. I've done wrong. I've been rebellious. And I must endure the Lord's fury until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me because he will bring me into the light and I will see his salvation. In the midst of all the difficulty, in the midst of the brokenness around him, where does Micah lay the blame? Here, I'm broken. My hope comes from God. But notice this difference between I and he. He says, I've fallen. I sit in darkness. I have sinned against him. I must endure the Lord's fury. But he, he will be my light. He will champion my cause. He will establish justice for me. He will bring me into the light. And he will be my salvation. Micah knew where to look. And it led him to conviction, not pride, as he walked humbly with God. And I want you to see Micah's hope. What the whole point of this is, is that our hope is in the one who was promised the Redeemer, the Deliverer. Shepherd your people with your staff in 714. The flock that is your possession. Who is a God like you? Here's the interesting thing with this. Micah's name in Hebrew is Micha. It literally means who is like. So in Hebrew, when it says Micha Yahweh, it's who is like our God. So now you you have Micah here kind of using this play of words with his own name. Who is a God like you? People weren't to look to the prophet, to the pastor, to their circumstances, to their human leaders. They're to look to God. That is where our hope comes from, forgiving iniquity. He passes over rebellion for the the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. That's the phrase that has struck me all week, that God delights in faithful love. See, sometimes I wonder if I have this picture of God that delights in the judgment and justice more than he delights in faithful love. Like, oh, you're just the wayward child. Yeah, 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 I love you, but like God's just the judge. And he is, and he does. But I know the heart of a parent does not take joy in disciplining their child. It's not like they enjoy that. They do it as an expression of love, for the child. But when the child giggles and laughs and you're having fun and playing together, there is a deep joy. That is a small shadow reflection of the true nature of God, our creator. He delights in expressing his faithful love to his children. What an incredible picture of God. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. This is who we place our hope in. This is who we serve. And now we stand in the present day listening to these words. Who is it that was promised who would break open the way? Who is it who would be lord and king? Who is it that would be born in Bethlehem as a child and yet be eternally existent who would come to deliver to rescue to save we know that his name is jesus and that's our hope and so we seek to act justly to love with mercy and kindness and to walk with humility with our god let's pray